Happy second anniversary! Behavioral Health Today dropped its first episodes on April 20th, 2020. To celebrate our second year mark, we're releasing five shows this week, one episode each day. Two will be brand new shows and three will be some of our favorites from the past year. We hope you enjoy them all, both new and old, and we're looking forward to another year of bringing you trending and relevant content in behavioral and mental health. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor, and with me today are Dr. Amy Rushline and Terrence Fitzgerald. Amy is a licensed marriage and family therapist and consultant for the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. The National Council's experts bring real-world experience and insight to a wide array of training and consulting services to make organizations more effective and efficient in providing sustainable, integrated services. She has over 25 years of experience training providers, leading healthcare teams, designing innovative behavioral health programs, and using implementation science to create change, equality, and social justice within organizations, cities, and states. Terrence is a racial scholar and clinical associate professor of social work at the University of Southern California. Terrence's experience spans from education as a school social worker to social justice grassroots organizations, focusing on marginalized children and families, and professional experience aligning curriculum of Midwest school districts for the purpose of meeting state and federal requirements. His research on racism and sexism can be seen in his books, White Prescription, The Dangerous Social Potential for Ritalin and Other Psychotropic Drugs to Harm Black Males, and his most recent book, Black Males and Racism, Improving the Schooling and Life Chances of African Americans. Today, we're talking about recognizing bias and promoting equity. Amy, Terrence, I want to welcome you to the show. So nice to have you both here. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah, very happy. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. You know, I'm wondering as we start out, if you'd allow me to provide a couple of working definitions, you guys can chime in at the end and kind of shape some things if you want to add to it or refine it a bit, but working definitions around today's topic, recognizing bias and promoting equity, bias, prejudice in favor of or against one thing person or group compared with another, usually in such a way that it is considered to be unfair. When we talk about equity, if we can look at equity as a system, it's a system that recognizes that each person has different resources and opportunities, and it seeks to understand and provide what people need based on these differences. Paula Dressel, founding vice president of Just Partners and Race Matters Institute, defines equity as treating everyone justly according to their circumstances. As we start out with these working definitions, how are you guys thinking about these and anything you'd like to tweak or kind of reframe for us a little bit? Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, I had a big shift internally when I learned of bias from a biological perspective and just recognizing that it's a cognitive bottleneck. So if we have a brain, we have bias, right? The reality is, is that Our minds take in over 11 million bits of information every single second. And so that we can actually be conscious of some of them, we have to take shortcuts, right? And this is the basis of those cognitive bias that we kind of tune out a lot of what's happening in the world and then give as much process and attention to what we can attend to in the moment. 
And ultimately, it ends up becoming difficult to understand our decision making because our minds are just automatically justifying those decisions, right? Uh, we kind of believe our decisions are consistent with our conscious beliefs, but in fact, our unconscious is kind of running the show. So I love to think of it as just like, these are unconscious patterns that happen to all of us every single day. That's really good. So while it's adaptive, because there's just so much to integrate and work through, it can also be in a place where, and it's unconscious, but it can also be in a place where it becomes troubling. And yeah. we're going to kind of name that a little bit later in the show. Terrence, anything you want to add to that at all? The bias? You know, or, uh... you know, you know, for me, you know, as we think about bias, I think it's also important. A lot of times we consider we focus in on the negative, but bias also has this ability to keep us safe. Right. Yes. We think about us as human beings, the development of, of man, of person. Bias can also create safety. We need biases. But as everything, you know, there's two sides of every coin. When we were thinking about, you know, as I was thinking about equity and the definition in which you described or you, yeah. you discussed, I always fall back to thinking about Aristotle. Aristotle's definition of equity really talked about this idea of the virtue of justice. Yes. Like the two cannot be divorced. And a lot of times when we have discussions around equity, we leave out this intention of justice, seeking justice, this virtue of justice that the two go hand in hand. So I like to remind people that it isn't just simply, you know, this idea of you, know, you have and I have, and if I don't have, you should have, but this idea of justice, it, it's just to have this virtue as human beings in order to survive. That's really good. That's really an aspirational piece to add in there of what if we look at this fairness, but we look at it through a just lens. You know, I know that both of you are involved with a couple of really stellar programs, National Council and USC. In fact, Amy, we just had Joe Parks, the medical director from National Council, and also Aaron Williams, the integrated care consultant and senior advisor on the program. They were just fantastic and just had a great time with them. And well, USC, USC, you know, it's SC, it's enough said. <laughs> That's just a stellar program in and of itself. But I know both programs are deeply vested in and committed to working towards greater equity for those in our nation overall. And I would very much like to have our audience, after listening to the podcast today, walk away with examples of some effective programs that exemplify positive outcomes towards greater equity from the contributions that you both have been making through your respective programs. Can we start with you, Amy, and maybe kind of share with us your work through National Council and your focus on equity, maybe a program or two that's impacting communities in an equity positive way? Yeah, happy to. Um, I think from my professional career, National Council has allowed me to do things that are most aligned with my DNA, so to speak. Okay. And part of this is doing that the equity work. And so we've been able to hold learning communities and communities of practice where we're providing training and technical assistance and coaching in organizational change methodology, also using data-informed metrics like equity, climate assessments, and more, where we're really focusing on trauma-informed resilience-oriented, equitable care. And, you know, we've been in that trauma-informed space for years, but I would say it's really only been in the past two or three years where we're really pushing that you cannot be trauma-informed if you're not racially just. 
Very good. Can you can you go just maybe another lap on that and link for us is assessing the equity climate from a trauma informed perspective. Link that just a wee bit more for us. So, you know, when we think about some of these communities of practice or learning communities, what we're doing is we typically start off with some baseline training so that everyone has an understanding of, you know, trauma, its impact and prevalence. Yes. How it impacts us, not just as providers, but as humans. And thus, you know, how it can play out in our, our workplace settings, our communities, And then we do a a climate assessment where we really have folks ask themselves very simple questions like, I feel like I can be myself here. I feel like the leadership in this organization is open to hearing about equity, about things that impact us negatively. And I feel that I have a voice to create change. And so after we get some of those assessments back, we also look at how this plays out in policies and procedures, everything from assessment to workforce, how we hire and retain employees are the different types of, I would say, paths for care that we create. And then ultimately coming back to the sense of creating safe and secure environments for all, whether that's the people that we serve next to or the people that we're serving. Really good. Really good. I'm going to have us come back and talk just a wee bit more about ways that you both educate and help folks recognize bias, but that's a really great start. Thanks for connecting that for us. Tara, same request. Share with us a program or two yeah. that you're involved with, or maybe even some of your research towards greater equity. Actually, mine is under three brackets. Okay. One is with the work, you know, working with, with Amy and other amazing people at National Council, you know, she talked about this idea of, you know, her voice for change. I always felt once I was introduced to the National Council through Amy and working with her and other, like I said, amazing people, my job was to sort of enhance that voice okay. through this racialized lens. You know, being a racial scholar, making sure that these sort of conversations uh, that normally are overlooked because people are either ignorant of them, mm-hmm. fearful of them, or just downright have misconceptions and they're actually operating from an oppressive lens. Yes. So I feel as my job is to bring that, that dynamic to those, those sort of trainings and those conversations. The second piece, I would say academically, working with the university or the Sudan Dork Peck School of Social Work, my job is to also enhance, but to bring this scholarship as it pertains to race and injustice and oppression. You hear people who talk about it, but to really understand the historical piece mm-hmm. of where we've come in terms of policies, where we've come in terms of ideologies and how those policies may no longer be around today of the 1800s, but we have essence of them within policies today or the way in which we create funding sources, the way we create policies, how we interact with one another. Right. So I feel it's enhancing that voice and bringing that expertise. You know, we think about this equity and enhancing one's understanding of equity and biases and how they can interact. Some of my work along with organizations such as the Grand Challenges for Social Work, you know, they have the what we call the Social Work's 13 Grand Challenges. And I'm a part of the challenge of eliminating racism. So continuing that fight on that front, and finally, through my scholarship, 
uh-huh. with, within my books is to tell these stories about a population that many people have underestimated or overlooked as we think about males of color. Usually we put people in these big brackets, right? It's, it's black, it's Latino. Sure. But there's these stories within as we think about gender and the stories of men of color are constantly overlooked. Mm-hmm. So telling those stories using their voices and what happens in education, the experiences of education, how these systems of oppression still operate today. Really good. So taking that just kind of that, that racialized lens, that's the first part. And then the second part around the historical perspective or the historical lens. And then you talk about the application and what it looks like as it manifests in some of the things that we have going on today. Yeah, it's really good. You know, we had um, talking about bias. We had Brandon Johnson on our show a little while back. Brandon is a uh, public health practitioner. And we did a show on fighting racism and bias with personal awareness and inner work. He was great. And he helped our audience learn ways to develop greater personal awareness to identify bias. And he gave us some exercises to help us move towards greater uh, accountability such that equity could be furthered. Amy, you kind of started us off on this, but when you both are working with programs, how do you folks educate and help recognize bias and particularly take into consideration what you were saying, Terrence, that some people, one, a lot of it tends to be unconscious. Two, some people um, are a little resistant to having these things pointed out. So how do you kind of come alongside these companies, individuals, the company, the programs you work with to both educate and help them recognize their bias? So I was going to say that bias research has actually come a long way in the past decade. Okay. And I think it's for a host of reasons, but you know, what makes my mind sing is that we now know that, you know, if you have a brain, you have bias. Yeah. And unfortunately, no matter how much you educate someone about bias, we're likely not going to be able to notice our own bias in the moment. And it's not because we don't care. It's lack of awareness or motivation. It's just the way that the brain works. And so there's not a lot of evidence out there that educating people about bias does anything to reduce their influence in the moment, right? Really helpful for long-term change. But as far as recognizing it in the moment, unfortunately, human bias occurs outside of conscious awareness, right? So you know, unfortunately, as an individual, we can't consciously watch out for bias because there's never going to be anything to see. It'd be like watching out for how much insulin you're producing. So how this can actually be overcome is collectively. So organizations, teams can become aware of particularly by team-based practices, you know, where we can really redesign and identify biases as they emerge. In other words, we have found out in the past five years that we're actually really good at recognizing bias in others in real time. And so, you know, the the good news about that is that if we can create practices to identify bias as they emerge, right, coming up with like non-threatening, non-accusatory language, that we can constantly be asking themselves, hey, could we be subject to a bias? You know, when we're developing policies and procedures or in supervision or workflow decisions, you know, even when rounding or doing a treatment team, just having some of those basic questions can reduce bias by 30 to 40 percent. Wow, that's significant. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Behavioral and mental health professionals provide critical support to our communities in a time when our communities need it more than ever but they need support too, to continue their education, 
to connect with colleagues, and to advance their career. And so we've launched Triad, the hub for behavioral and mental health professionals. At Triad, you'll find education, community, and career resources for both current and aspiring behavioral and mental health professionals, all curated specifically for you and all for free. Visit us at hellotriad.com BHT to register for your free professional account. Again, that's hellotriad.com BHT. Come join the community today. That's really good. You know, I like that idea that, you know, if you've got a brain, you've got bias. It just kind of goes hand in hand. And while it's adaptive on one point because you're trying to process so many things, it can be problematic and it can be negatively impacting on folks. But I like this idea that we may not be able to recognize bias in the moment, but collectively, if we can be walked through and take a look at these things in time in that process, I could see, it might even be a kind of a nice safe process too, to make our unconscious conscious. It's kind of part of what therapy does a lot of times, make the unconscious conscious, but able to become more conscious of our own bias through that collective approach first, and then being more informed later on down the road. That's a really great way to do it. Taryn, same question. What are you doing to help educate and yeah. help folks recognize bias? For me, you know, as Amy mentioned, this, this idea of increasing awareness isn't enough. It's one of my pet peeves as a person who has operated within public schools before getting yeah. to academia and having these school districts bring in these individuals who are going to teach to be aware of your bias. And then they stop short, as George Cassandra would say. You know, you stop short. You're now aware. Now we're done. It's more than that. You yes, know, like, as Amy mentioned, you can't check yourself if you don't know. For me, it's why Amy and I, I think we work so well together is that we understand it's about creating an environment to call it out. So we can, we can talk about one's awareness, but then we also have to create space within organizations, which in schools for me, which public education by university settings, creating space where people can call it out and yeah. also feeling safe to call it out. Right. What does that so mean? Not feeling, okay. So if you and I are working together sure. and there are some forms of microaggression, or yes. maybe there's some sort of comment that you said that was based on a stereotype. And for you, it was, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a belief. I should feel safe enough to go, you know, Graham, what you just said was really offensive. Let me hit you to what the reality is. And guess what? Hey, there's some resources for you too. Hey, like did that. you ever hear about this book? Bruce is thinking Graham is going to hold this against me. And also Graham is my supervisor. And so Graham may also penalize me later. Right. So instead, most people of color, what we do is we compartmentalize this sort of offense, these microaggressions, these incidences. And we talk amongst ourselves or people we feel safe with yeah. who are not part of our group. And we complain about it, but we feel unsafe to voice it. Why not create an environment in, in these organizations or institutions where you can call it out safe space, but also it's safe for those who've made those mistakes, right? To Very say, good. I did make a mistake, and it's based on this idea of culture humility. I made this mistake, and I'm going to be supported by people within my organization to sort of guide me into this truth or another way of seeing a particular thing that I have done, right? So really I've, like I've created yeah. this, and then, you know what else I'm going to do, Graham? I'm going to teach you how to track your own progress. You know, how to set goals, maybe also how to be reflective about that particular incident, right? This is what happened. We, you've become aware of it. People have said this is how it affected them. 
what are you going to do to address that? Wow. You know, I never thought about how my mother or my friends or the community I grew up with has influenced my thinking about this or media has influenced me. So now I'm going to take this trip into educating myself about this and how it has worked. And then guess what? I've now moved forward within an environment that supports me, but also will call me out if I have stepped over the line. I really like this idea here that awareness is nice, but it's not enough. The idea of being able to call this out and not just to attention, but to call it out so there can be some change. And it goes back to what Amy said a little while back of wanting to create environments that are safe and secure in which both sides have an opportunity to grow here. On the one side, it's those that have maybe been afraid to speak, having a safe and secure enough environment to exercise maybe some of their own self-assertion or maybe some of their own self-disclosure in a way that could really be growing for them. On the other side, what I'm hearing you emphasize is not to shame the person that might be, you know, it's, as Amy is saying, our, our, our biases are typically unconscious. So if we can bring this to someone's awareness, it's not so much to shame or, or, or slam them. Instead, it's to help them kind of get curious about and be open to taking a look and then helping them walk through maybe the origin of these and maybe some ways that change could come. We can maybe even track this and watch that, watch that equity mindset begin to grow over time. So I love the safety on both sides of that. The other piece is not to be too Pollyanna. Yeah, no, there no. are individuals you're going to run into who are not, who are entrenched in these things, in this sort of Absolutely. thinking, right? This yeah. racialized thinking. They believe certain individuals or groups of people are not human beings or have particular yeah. traits that are, you know, have been demonized and they see this individual that way. Yeah. What it does then, the, creating this environment, teaches them then to keep quiet. If you have I these do. beliefs, and you don't want to change, you don't want to grow, you don't want to value the voices, the diverse voices around you, you are surrounded by people who are trying. What do most people do? They cower. They cower and they keep it to themselves and have less of these incidences. We may not be able to change. I know it's impossible. I'm a person of color. I've lived a life. I know it's impossible to change everyone. Yeah. But at least it sets up the environment that you let you communicate to people. This particular behavior is not warranted it's not wanted and it won't be accepted so they're kind of on notice aren't they you know you can hold your bias and we would encourage you to take a look at them because i think when you hold those biases too you limit yourself in the life that you could be living with a greater openness and and appreciation and gratitude for what's out there and these biases keep us small and narrow and it keeps you you know simply with some kind of a chip or kind of bent in some ways Eckhart totally talks about kind of a pain body idea you know where you just you're living in a very uncomfortable state. So I love the idea here, Terrence and Amy, that you're, that you're saying when we help people ad- address and become conscious of bias, we're helping them free themselves from some things that, you know, could be strongholds or could be limiting in some ways that really kind of keep their life kind of smaller than maybe it needs to be. Amy, you were going to say some things as well. Yeah, I, I was just, I wanted to share two other ways that I see this playing out or where we Please. can actually make change. Yeah. So hopefully your listeners can think about, wow, this afternoon I could try this differently, you know? And one of those, and this is the hardest one, so I'll go with it first, which is recognizing our gut instincts, right? Okay. And and Graham, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about us as clinicians, right? Yeah. That especially if you've been doing this a while, The reality is, is that we likely do have gut instincts around diagnoses, around treatment planning, and all of these other things. And based off of our own experiences in the field, 
and, you know, on some level, our instincts are wonderful because they've gotten us to where we are. But on the other hand, we have to realize that our entire field of mental health and, and substance use conditions and everything else is set on very inequitable, you know, training, the way that we conceptualize wellness and yes. all these other things, right? And so when we're thinking about designing equitable and bias countering processes and practices, right. we really want to encourage those that place an effort of on cognition and connection instead of intuition or gut instinct. Got it. And, yeah, and really that's good. challenging, right? And I think that, you know, it's natural for us to want to make fast, efficient judgments, right? Yeah. And the reality is that if we really want to try to manage for bias, this is about designing practices to consciously slow down and setting up necessary conversations and other mechanisms where we can slow down, put more deliberative thought into things and wider array of voices and experiences. Yeah. Before we move forward with decisions, right? So this is, for me, it's about cultivating cultures where in the workplace, we're constantly reminding each other that our brain's default system is egocentric and that we tend to get stuck in beliefs that our experiences or perceptions are reality when, you know, better decisions come from stepping back and seeking out wider variety of perspectives and views. You know what I love about that, Amy, is, you know, from our upbringings and our families of origin, and we recognize that dynamically we set up unknowingly, unconsciously, you know, these psychic templates, these models, these schematas that we work from. And there's nothing right or wrong about that. Just That's just what happens. And what you're talking about is, and again, it's unconscious and it guides everything we do. It organizes our whole life. And it can be, some parts of it can be very enhancing. Some parts can be very limiting. What I love about this process here is that you're encouraging telling stories and finding out and appreciating people's lives. Because the more people are talking in the room, the, our, our paradigms, our schematas are forced to open up to recognize that ours is not the only one in the world. And why are the people doing what they're doing? And what explains some of the things that are occurring, allowing us to have a greater appreciation and maybe kind of move from that informed place to decide how now do I have to think about this with this new information introduced? Because my old paradigm may not fit anymore. Again, some people are really bent and, you know, the pain bodies idea, and we're not going to straighten them out, but hopefully they'll shut up and we can have a place where others, you know, can continue to grow. Hey, you know, once, once you're seeing, you know, let's say bias addressed and named and called out and these things we're talking about to hear and, and not just greater awareness cultivated, but you're seeing people move to a greater place of growth individually, collectively, in terms of witnessing kind of the rippling effects of this, what are you seeing take place? in a positive way when there's this equity positive environment now? What are, what are people experiencing? I've seen it in two settings. I've seen okay. it, you know, mentioned my previous work before getting academia with a school social worker. I've seen it within the school setting where there are particular teachers or administrators who are so focused on the state standards and testing and, you know, yeah. classroom management, and they're hesitant to do this sort of trainings or this idea of being reflective, looking inward, um, looking at past experiences, how it has shaped the manner in which they interact with children and their parents, yeah. or maybe even other teachers. And you begin to see this change where they then are seeking out additional help 
around subjects they normally wouldn't. They then are also asking you about resources. May not be a lot at first. It's one or two, you know, emails here or there. But then you begin to see something you have said about, you know, maybe thinking about parents and their experiences and thinking about the manner in which society has affected their behavior and what you're getting. You begin to see this breaking down of the wall yeah. that I've seen with teachers and administrators, and they become more critical of themselves and yeah. others around them. I'm thinking of this one individual student, and it doesn't mean you know anything, but he was from Louisiana, and he had this deep belief about Everyone pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. Everything's equal in this world. There's no such thing as inequality. There never was. Fully but surely, you know, working with him and exposing him to particular literature. And then mm -hmm. when he would send me something back that was contrary, instead of getting upset, but, you know, supporting him and saying, I get it. I like what you did. You went to look to find alternative, you know, materials. But let's break down exactly what they said and why they said it and who is funding their, their writing. You know, and then he began to start understanding, wow, there's more to it than what's just being yeah. put out. There's mm -hmm. agendas by individuals. There's money and siding with one side versus another. And he began to open up and he sent me a letter maybe two years after he graduated how the discussions we had had really changed his philosophy on people of color and that he was grateful that I supported his growth. And it's because I saw him as a person on the fence. Yes. He was a person who could go either way. Yes. He wasn't entrenched, but he was really inquisitive. Yeah. Something you can work with. And so I've seen those those individual changes and systems changes in my experiences. I think, yeah, that's really great. You know what I'm, what I'm impressed with as well is is your willingness and Amy's I'm, I'm hearing the same thing with you too, you know, to, to do this work that requires kind of this holding capacity because people come in kind of prickly and pokey and, you know, kind of biased and kind of locked down in a certain way of thinking. And it could be hard, you know, to, yeah, to, to start with that. It is hard. And it's hard yeah. to be on the end while they're growing and kind of taking their lens that might be kind of tightly wrapped here and begin to slowly open it up. But you guys are talking about this really cool, and, and I admire you both around this, this holding capacity that allows people, going back to you, Amy, the safe and secure space in which to kind of wrestle with themselves, wrestle with you a little bit, and keep coming up with ways that are healthier, more accurate, and honest about thinking about some of the truths that are out there that they may not be thinking. And that requires a lot of holding. So my hat's off to you both in your patience and being able to do that. That is not an easy Well, pass. don't give us, don't give, don't give me too much because Amy and I talk about this as a person of color speaking about this. It's extremely hard, you know, yeah. I, because I'm, it's a cost, I'm living it, but then I'm also attempting to educate. So the stress of being this individual who you may have these biases against. Yeah. But Terrence, that's what I'm saying though. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, what I'm but, saying. Cause but, you are a person yeah, of color yeah, doing yeah, this work and you're having right, to hold this double right. dose of helping this other yeah. person it's, deal through their stuff, plus why you're having, why yeah. you're being poked in the chest. Yeah, it's, it's, I'll just put it this way. It's, it's stressful, but in the end, I keep thinking about, I don't know if it's appropriate, but you know, as, as a kid, my, my father, my stepfather, sixth grade education. Uh -huh. And he, I always describe him, I told him he's like the black John Wayne. Okay. You know, if you can imagine John Wayne black, you don't talk to John Wayne about your first heartbreak, right? Cause John <laughs> Wayne, you need to buckle up, kid. You know, you don't, Sure, emotions. We talked about fishing and the weather. So one day he told me, you know, we were talking about, just came out of nowhere. He said, Terrence, there are two types of people in this world. 
There are people that you can talk to. You just don't know. Yeah. They don't know. You talk to them. You may get them to see it. You may not get them to see it. And the others, you have to punch in the mouth. Yeah. And I took what he meant by that. Most people, half majority of people, are those people who just don't know. Yeah. They're either victims themselves mm-hmm. of this game, as we think about racism, thinking about their own privilege, thinking that they have this place on the apex that is above others. But majority are being played by a system. And some people just don't know because they've been misguided. Those are the people you can talk to. Those yeah. are the people you can work with. And the others you punch in the mouth are those individuals I talked about who are in so entrenched. I'm not going to waste my time because it's not working. You don't want, you don't want it. Yeah. So that's the best advice I was ever given. Yeah, I really <laughs> like, like that. John Wayne. Just, just, a, <laughs> I like that image, you know, just a little quick sidebar you're talking about here. You know, those that are biased, locked up in their own stuck place, they are actually without recognizing they're actually victims themselves trapped in this mindset. But you know, what we know is that, you know, hurt people hurt people. Whether someone has been through a trauma and, you know, comes out antisocial and well, they were hurt very early on, but they become hurtful through their behaviors. Now you're talking about a victim of this kind of bias or prejudice. They're victims of something that they're stuck in. And those people can become victimizing, can't they? So that's a cool little sidebar, but I'm going to circle back around if you'd allow me. I think for you to hold the things you're having to hold while you're helping somebody work through the very things that are in some ways being projected onto you or something, you know, that, that could be related to you. That, 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 I think that's a really great holding capacity you provide. So really nicely done on that. Any thought on that, Amy, before we kind of move on or? You both mentioned the fact that this work is hard, right? Yeah. And uncomfortable. And I think that we want to highlight, or my hope is for your listeners, is that that we acknowledge that the the research supports that, that yeah. the more diverse and inclusive teams are, yes, they have a higher intelligence that's stable across times and tasks. And it, you know, there's all these wonderful outcomes. Yeah. But the what I don't think we always acknowledge and anticipate is that diverse and inclusive teams feel less comfortable. And that is why they actually perform better. And this research has been out there for over a decade that diverse and inclusive teams really feeling uncomfortable is necessary for teams to get the benefit. In other words, when I'm surrounded with people who don't think exactly the way I do, who haven't had the same experiences that I have. I have to work harder to explain myself and to understand the people I'm with. Absolutely. So perceived effectiveness and confidence is lower in diverse teams. It doesn't always feel right, but it actually increases performance and outcomes for all. So I love that. Right. So, so the, you know, I think about in working in programs that I worked in the past, you know, I always had my people, the people who, you know, if we'd worked together long enough, I felt like we could finish each other's sentences and I would have a sense, you know, what they would say. In essence, what I'm saying is you don't want that. You know, you want to be surround yourself with people who see things very differently than you do. And you have to work hard to explain yourself, but it increases outcomes. And it, again, it might take longer to get things done, but you're more likely going to get them right. Well, I really like that. You're you're encouraging us to lean into the uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable, but that's where we grow. You know, this idea of tolerating 
the the discomfort long enough to see the growth that can come from that. You know, if it sucks, well, embrace the suck. You know, lean into it, hold that, and watch what comes out of that in some really good ways. You know, we're kind of uh, beginning to kind of wind down in our time today, and I I like it if you would each say a word to our listeners as a takeaway message around equity and the promotion of treating everyone justly according to their circumstances. Give us a takeaway message, each one of you, just a kind of a little pithy takeaway. Well, I just want to let people know that they can start anywhere along this process, that there's no wrong place to start when it comes to creating change and increasing equity for all, whether that's doing your own work by reading and, and seeing things. I have my own personal bias that I think where the work needs to become and be done the most is in white bodies like mine. Frankly, I think that's where we need to see more change. But Besides that, I just want to honor that, you know, that this is something that can be done and to try to, if we can, not see it as separate than the work we're already doing, right? Because then it becomes overwhelming. It seems like the next big thing of the month or the year, the new change process that we're going to, instead seeing where we can implement this in what we're already doing. So designing practices around our workflows and things that we already have going. That's really good. I like that. Terrence, give us a pithy takeaway. For me, it is this idea that in order for us to to move forward, for us to actually accomplish what so many people have, you know, these nicely well-written mission statements on organization web pages, or before we do anything, before we think about bias training, before we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, before we think about moving anything on anyone, mm-hmm. we need to set the groundwork. We have to begin with being reflective. Really good. We have to set the groundwork on ourselves. And the focus can't be just simply on some sort of eradicating of racism or just simply eradicate. We have to really take a look at ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we also have to take a look at the history of our organization with the history of people and how we've gotten to where we are today. History is so interlocked as it relates to what's happening now. We ignore history, but history has set up what we are doing and why we're doing what we're today, what's happening today, how we're interacting, the lack of services, the lack of respect, the lack of taking certain populations and their issues as major concerns the overlooking of the marginalized, those who've been historically marginalized, has a lot to do with history and how that history has affected us. We really need to, to, anything, any sort of training that anyone wants to begin to create has to start with that. Yeah, there is Uh, a contextual meaning there, isn't there? Yes, for sure. Really good. Hey, as we close today, guys, would you each give us a resource or two, both for the organizations you're working with and maybe how people can follow up with you both personally as well? Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, I think that there's a ton of great resources on the National Council Health Equity and Racial Justice page from the climate assessment that we were talking about earlier that, you know, anyone can have access to, to toolkits that we have created to really walk people through the steps of how to integrate this into their practices, into the, you know, integrated health practices. 
And then I also just want to highlight another resource, which is the Neural Leadership Institute. They are the ones who I think are really pushing the bar when it comes to organizational change and mm -hmm. equity issues. So want to highlight those. And I can be found on LinkedIn and through national council pages as well. Awesome. Thank you. Terrence, any uh, resources you want to have us uh, yeah. listeners follow up well, with, please? Yeah, definitely the ones that Amy, Amy mentioned, especially the National Council. For me, you know, one that I think is important is learning for justice. They have a lot of, of good things around professional development, things that are happening within schools themselves. Teaching for Tolerance is another, and not self-promoting, but the latest book I co-edited with Dr. Kim, Kimberly Finney, it's entitled The Reality of Diversity, Gender, and Skin Color, From Living Room to the Classroom. And it talks about it has these narratives from so many different groups of people who are diverse that from those who are you know considered atheists to those who were latino to indigenous people their experiences so one could you know gather what it is as we think about diversity from those particular lenses those, those diverse lenses yeah really good i appreciate those and we're going to have those on our site you know, as we come into a close for our time today, what I so appreciate about you both is that you're involved in some very creative and forward-thinking, clearly solution-focused efforts, you know, to promote greater equity. I so appreciate what you're doing. It's been very inspiring. I very much enjoyed our time together. I'd love to have you back at some point. So thanks for what you guys are doing. And thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, really appreciate it. It's great to be able to, to learn from and with you. Great. Thanks so much. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Amy, Terrence, and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So take a look at our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT, and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.